The recent passing of Terence Dix had me digging out some old Doctor Who stories of his, and my nostalgia directed me towards horror of Fang Rock. This four-part serial opened the 15th season of Doctor Who on the 3rd of September 1977, and ran until the 24th of September that same year. Tom Baker was, at this point, at the peak of his powers as the Doctor, and Louise Jameson was back as Leela for her second and final season. The horror of Fang Rock has long been a favourite of mine, and one I had to have seen as a kid, as it was never repeated by the BBC. Imagine my surprise, though, for when I discovered in researching this show that it was not highly thought of. I was genuinely surprised. As a lowly five-year-old, I was scared by the taut atmosphere of this story, and still impressed by its tight claustrophobia as an adult. Horror of Fang Rock has a number of things going for it. Firstly, the writer is Dix, one of the most prolific contributors the show ever had. And secondly, it was script-edited by Robert Holmes, one of the finest writers the show had ever had. Together, these men laboured long and hard under tight deadlines to create this script, one of the finest of the base under siege stories. The story goes that the 15th season was to open with a vampire tale, The Witch Lords, later retitled The Vampire Mutations, but this four-parter was canned by the BBC so as not to clash with the upcoming adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. This seems rather spurious to me. Surely they could have done some cross-promotion, or even assumed, probably correctly, that the audience for Doctor Who and the audience for Dracula were probably completely different. This is borne out when I learned that Count Dracula, as the series was called, aired on BBC Two at 9.30 at night. And in December, three months after, it would have aired as the opening of this series of Doctor Who. Nevertheless, the last-minute cancellation left Holmes and Dix scrabbling. Holmes asked Dix to give them something quick, set in one location, and reasonably cheap. He felt a lighthouse would be a good setting. Dix protested that he didn't know anything about lighthouses, and Holmes, perhaps recalling a time when Dix was the story editor and he was the writer, told Dix to go to the children's library and pick up a book. Dix had long been a proponent of doing his research from kids' books. He felt they always contained the pertinent information, but always had a cleaner and more understandable manner than adult books of the same topic. He had, in point of fact, told Holmes to do the very same thing when Holmes was assigned a story about medieval England, back when Dix was the story editor. Dix felt this was Holmes getting his own back. Still, Dix rolled up his sleeves and got into it. After all, Dix was a canny writer, and he could always resubmit the vampire script at a later date, which he did. The Witch Lords was an old script that he dusted off from a pitch from the 1975 season anyway, and it ultimately became the 18th season opener State of Decay. Never want to throw away a good idea. Terence was a well-read and cultured man, and immediately latched upon the poem Flannel Isle by Wilfred Wilson Gibson, and originally published in 1912. The poem was based upon real events taking place on December 15th, 1900, whereby three lighthouse keepers mysteriously disappeared from their posts. Investigations showed the main doors were both closed, the beds unmade, and the clock stopped. A further search revealed that the lamps had been cleaned and refilled. A set of oilskins was found, suggesting that one of the keepers had left the lighthouse without them, which was surprising considering the severity of the weather on the date of the last entry in the lighthouse log. 
The only sign of anything amiss in the lighthouse was an overturned chair by the kitchen table. There was no sign of the keepers, neither inside the lighthouse nor anywhere on the island. Terence took this idea and turned it into these four episodes of Doctor Who. With Dicks labouring furiously day and night to get the scripts done, the Who production team were welcoming a new producer, Graham Williams. Philip Hinchcliffe, the producer of Tom Baker's first three seasons, had moved on. Some say he was pushed due to some of the more vocal criticisms of the series' more horrific direction by Murray Whitehouse, and Williams had helped convince Robert Holmes, who was also due to leave, to stay to help with the transition. Williams' first problem, after securing a new script for the opener, was to find a new location for the filming. Engineering works were scheduled to take place at the studios at BBC Television Centre during July 77, the time this serial would have been filmed, and as such, Williams had to secure a new filming location. When this had happened previously with the Sontaran experiment, the show was filmed entirely on location, but the reduced production time meant that that wasn't feasible on this occasion. Instead, Doctor Who took over the BBC's Pebble Mill Studios in Birmingham, a move that annoyed Tom Baker, but proved to be a boon for the show. Birmingham had long wanted to get into drama production, and as such bent over backwards to help the production team secure anything they wanted, even stealing cameras from a neighbouring studio so director Patricia Paddy Russell could get the necessary shots. Horror of Fang Rock opens beautifully, setting the tight claustrophobic nature of the story brilliantly. The lighthouse stands alone when, in a scene reminiscent of Predator or The Thing, the keepers of the lighthouse, Reuben, the elderly salty sea dog, Vince, the fresh-faced rookie, and the station keeper, Ben, bear witness to a meteor crashing on Earth. Well, Vince bears witness. The other two remain to be convinced. The story is set in the early 1900s, as electricity was starting to replace oil, and this causes friendly arguments about progress between Ben and Reuben. A sudden fog rolls in, but Reuben feels this is an unnatural development. He's been a seaman all his life, and he can tell when a fog is due. This is unprecedented. It's a great opening. The characters are well drawn, and we instantly see the dynamics between the crew. The audience also has a mystery to chew on, with the crashing meteor and some menace, the alien eye view of the lighthouse. The TARDIS then arrives. You said I would like Brighton. Well, I do not. Does it look like Brighton? I do not know. It's not even hope. Could be worthy. The machine has failed again? Oh, not really, not failed. It's on the right planet at the right time. Roughly in the right general direction. Assuming this is worthy. You cannot tell. Does the localized condition of planetary atmospheric condensation cause the malfunction of the visual orientation circuits? Well, put it another way, we got lost in the fog. This is great. There is no reason for the TARDIS to be here other than she takes the Doctor wherever he needs to go. Getting lost in the fog makes no sense for a time and space vehicle, but at the same time, it's perfect. We don't need another reason for the Doctor and Leela to show up. Both the Doctor and Leela have altered their appearance to allow for their visit to Brighton in the early 1900s, and this works great. It wouldn't make sense for Leela to show up in leathers. For those unaware, Leela was picked up by the Doctor in the face of evil, and is a savage warrior adopted by the Doctor in an effort to civilise her. There's no doubt that Leela was for the dads, as John Nathan Turner would say. But upon arrival at the lighthouse, Leela changes into a large warm jumper and leggings, and curiously has never looked sexier. 
The Doctor and Leela head over to the lighthouse when the Doctor sees the light isn't working, but the foghorn is blurring. Leela's attitude is wonderful. She has no shame about changing her clothes in front of the naive Vince and is very forthright in her words and deeds. The Doctor wonders why Ben isn't working on the generator and he continues to investigate. Well done, sir. You're an engineer and no mistake. Doctor, where are you? I'm over here. Oh, found the trouble then? Yes, I always find trouble. Oh, Ben will be pleased. I doubt it. Oh, he will, sir. He couldn't make head and tail of what we're wrong. I wonder where he's got to. He's over there, dead. He's been dead some little time. What? Vince is appalled and shocked by Ben's death, a great performance from John Abbott. Reuben is instantly suspicious of the Doctor and Leela, even accusing them of being spies, which makes perfect sense. If you think about it, two strangers just show up and suddenly someone ends up dead? What would you think? Reuben is played with all the crusty old sailor charm he can muster by Colin Douglas, and this is one of the areas that Classic Who always excelled. A great supporting cast. All of the guest characters are well realised, even in as little time as Ben has, and all three come across well. These are simple folk, regular people, brought into the Doctor's frequently horrific world. This is a great opening episode, dripping in atmosphere. Leela is a much underrated companion, more than capable of looking after herself, but her inexperience means she can ask all the questions necessary for a companion without appearing to be stupid. As the Doctor continues to probe learning of the meteorite from Vince, Leela, feeling that something is off, pokes around herself, and she discovers that her instincts are correct. The local ponds are populated by dead fish. Dix ramps up the tension further by having Vince discover that Ben's body is missing. Has he been resurrected? Leela points out the stupidity of this remark, but their musings are interrupted by a ship crashing upon the rocks. One of the things people complained about here was the effects in this cliffhanger, but they're fine. They are Titanic-level quality, but it's a decent enough effect of a toy boat crashing on the rocks. It does exactly what the script calls for and does it reasonably well for the budget they had. I swear people complain about anything. The main complaint I have about this cliffhanger is that it's not all that dramatic. It doesn't put the Doctor or his companion in any danger. Still, part one of Horror of Fang Rock is a quality slice of Doctor Who. Let's continue and see if the whole cake is as tasty. With only five characters in episode one, Dix needs to add more to raise the body count and add further tension. The crash ship from the end of part one adds four new characters to the mix. Lord Palmerdale, played by Sean Caffrey, James Skinsale, portrayed by Alan Rowe, Adelaide Lesage, played by Annette Ouellette, and the ship's Captain Harker, played by Rio Fanning. All four are noted character actors with large IMDb entries and bring an element of class to the production, as none of them overact or chew the scenery. Rather, they play the whole thing straight, as if in a classic BBC drama. Every one of the new characters is exquisitely drawn. Lord Palmerdale is a capitalist monkey, concerned only with cashing in on some financial information he has picked up. He's not concerned with people or lives, just money. He's antithetical to everything the Doctor stands for, and he's doomed to die for it. That's pretty obvious. Skin Sale is more nuanced. He's an ex-army man, a man of status, who seems to have fallen on hard times after becoming a politician. The insider trading information he has provided Palmerdale will provide him with enough wealth to get out of his situation, but he's otherwise an honourable man. Dix makes us like Skin Sale, even though he's clearly cannon fodder. 
Adelaide is simpering and used to privilege, but she takes a shine to Vince, who treats her with respect. Dix uses the new characters to introduce a class element to the show, because the British excel at class warfare. Harker is the haunted captain. He knows he's broken the law of the sea by following Palmerdale's mad quest for money, and he regrets it. All these characters are instantly recognisable archetypes, and if they verge on the side of cliché, well, that's only because Dix wants us to know who they all are in a very short amount of time. It also helps establish the conflict between the new characters. The lighthouse keepers like and trust each other, and whilst Reuben suspects the Doctor and Leela of misdeeds, he quickly changes his mind when he overhears them discussing what Leela suspects is going on. The episode therefore needs more characters to bring some jeopardy. Palmerdale wants to get off the island immediately, the fog and danger be damned. He's in conflict with Skinsale, who couldn't curry the way, as he doesn't particularly like what he's done, and Harker, whose duty clashes with his greed. Again, Dix's finely constructed scripts feature equally finely constructed characters. It's also in part two that Reuben mentions the Beast of Fang Rock to the Doctor, an old sea legend of death that came to this small island a few years ago, and Dix is clearly tipping his hat to his inspirations. The Doctor is considerate to all, except Palmerdale, who he treats with utter contempt. Baker overacts in his interactions with the new arrivals, largely due to this period coinciding with Baker's ego becoming such that only he was felt to understand what made Doctor Who work. He disliked these scripts, proving once again that just because an actor is in a project doesn't mean he understands it. He would also try and upstage the other actors, causing Louise Jameson to throw her own weight around and stand up to him. Director Russell gave Jameson extra close-ups to cover Baker's insistence on not following the rehearsals in regards to his entrances. To Baker's credit, he did later apologise to everyone, including Jameson, with whom he is now fast friends. Tension is further built up by the views of the lighthouse through the eyes of whatever it is that's doing the stalking, and the Doctor finding Ben's body, which has been eviscerated. Whoever is doing this wants to understand human biology. The alien is depicted as a green glowing blob, and again, this is quite well realised for the time, and budget. The Doctor lays it all out for them. Gentlemen, I've got news for you. This lighthouse is under attack and by morning we might all be dead. <laughs> Anyone interested? Leela is magnificent in this story. She always had an edge none of the other companions had, and her casual disregard for the dead is played as practicality. They are dead, what more can be done? Her threatening Palmerdale with her knife is a chilling moment, but played for laughs, even though the adults in the audience know she's quite serious. Part 2 concludes with Reuben checking on the boiler room from which emanates a blood-curdling scream. Part 2 has ramped up the story considerably. The Doctor is still completely in the dark as to what is happening, very different from the almost omnipotent figure portrayed by David Tennant and Matt Smith, or the master chess player portrayed by Sylvester McCoy. This fallible Doctor is more relatable. Not all heroes are super. Some of them just do the best they can. Part 3 sees Reuben taken over by the alien force, fulfilling his earlier prophecy to Vince that, of the three men stationed at Fangrock the last time, two had died and one was driven mad, causing poor Vince to start worrying. Palmerdale bribes Vince with £50 to send a message via telegraph that will secure his fortune, something that doesn't sit well with Skinsale, who was eavesdropping. The Doctor interrupts and Palmerdale hides only to succumb to the alien creature that has scaled the sheer lighthouse walls. Perhaps he thinks he's Kona. Vince then burns the money when he realises that Palmerdale is dead, so as not to be blamed for his death. It's at this point that the Doctor tells the rest of the crew about his suspicions, that this is an alien force, and they 
quite unsurprisingly, don't believe him. Skinsale is apparently up on the modern science fiction of the day, saying he likes the fantasies of old Herbert as much as anyone, a nice reference to A.G. Wells, but believes that this is all a little preposterous. They are silenced by the news from Vince that Palmerdale has fallen over the side, and Adelaide's scream is hysterically cut short by Leela slapping her across the face. The Doctor and Skinsale go to check and return with his body. Skinsale's crimes are then uncovered. You've never seen death before. Come on. Adelaide, you must be brave. Adelaide. Take your hands off me! You did it! You killed him! Me? Her death is so ridiculous. You went out after him, you followed him, and then you pushed him. I was never in the lab. Then where were you? True, I followed him, but only to find out what he was up to. You did it, I know you oh, did so it! And what was he up to? He was trying to bribe that young keeper to telegraph a message to his brokers. And so you came down here and wrecked the telegraph. It was the only way I could think of stopping him. I'd have been dishonored, ruined. Of course. So to protect your honor, you've put all our lives in danger. What? You mean we've no way of contacting the mainland now? Oh, no. We're on our own now. Reuben, however, now possessed, claims another victim. Harker, and the doctor finds Reuben's body. Reuben Mortis. What is that? He's been dead for hours. But that is not possible. He was in his room. Not Reuben. But he was. I saw him. The chameleon factor. Sometimes called lycanthropy. Leela, I've made a terrible mistake. I thought I'd lock the enemy out. Instead, I've locked it in with us. This cliffhanger ending is wonderful. The Doctor is screwed up on a fundamental level, leading to all these deaths. It's a great moment, a real learning curve for him, and a wonderful episode. Sometimes Doctor Who can struggle in its midsections, sometimes descending into runarounds whereby characters are captured, escape, only to be captured again with no real forward progression in the plot. This is more likely to affect six-part or longer stories, but it has been known to hamper four-part tales as well. Thankfully, that is not the case here, and this is not receiving a repeat screening in an omnibus format is quite odd, given that it flows together better than most stories. Part 4 concludes the story. As you might expect, the deaths are now frequent. Reuben kills Vince, which is quite sad, as Vince was easily the most likeable character in the story. The Doctor also manages to ascertain who the villain is. The Ruton. The Rutan are the arch-adversary of the Sontarans, and had been mentioned a few times in past stories involving the potato-headed short arses. Dick selected to use this opportunity to introduce them at the last moment when he was casting around for a villain of the piece. Leela gathers all the people that are still alive into the lamp room so as to offer a better defence. Her tolerance for Adelaide shit has expired, and she simply rolls her eyes at the simpering woman when she passes out. As such, she isn't that broken up when Adelaide is the Rutan's next victim. Still, the Doctor has come up with a plan to destroy both the Rutan and its invasion fleet. This leads to a truly great scene. A quintessential Doctor Who moment, when the Doctor and the Rutan talk on a staircase. It takes a lot of balls, and a distinct lack of money, to have your big confrontation between hero and villain be a cosy chat on a lighthouse stirwell. The Rutan dispenses with the form of Reuben and adopts its own form, that of a green tentacled blob. Colin Douglas still provides the voice, however, as you'll hear in this clip. 
Now I remember Reuben the Rutan. You know our form? Well, when you've seen one Rutan, you've seen them all. We are a Rutan scout. We are specially trained in the new metamorphosis techniques. Well, I expect you'll get better at it in time. What are you doing in this part of the galaxy, anyway? That doesn't concern you. You are to be destroyed. Got it. You're at last losing that interminable war with the Sontarans. That is a lie. Is it? You used to control the whole of the Mutter's Spiral once. Now the Sontarans have driven you to the far fringes of the galaxy. The glorious Rutan army is making a series of strategic withdrawals to selected strong points. Rutan, that's the empty rhetoric of a defeated dictator, and I don't like your face either. Your mockery will end with your race, Earthling, when the mighty Rutan battlefield occupies this planet. Why invade an obscure planet like Earth? It's of no value to you. The planet is obscure, but its strategic position is sound. We shall use it as a launch point for our final assault on the Santaran rubble. But if you set up a power base here, the Santarans will bombard it with photonic missiles. That is unimportant. It will serve the cause of our final glorious victory. And what about its people? Remedied by better no value. We scouted all the planets of this solar system. Only this one suits our purpose. I can understand your military purposes. But why murder a handful of harmless humans? It is necessary until we return to our mothership and the mothership informs the fleet. No one must know of our visit to Earth. But you crashed, didn't you? Just as you made your discovery, you failed. Failed? We're sending a signal to the mothership with a power from the primitive mechanism below. You're not, you know. Sorry to disappoint you. I fixed that as well, Oyster Face. All your interference is useless. The beam was transmitting long enough for the mothership to trace the signal. Can't be certain of that. It will come. But by then, you'll be dead. What could you Earthlings possibly do to us? Well, if you'll just step this way, I'll show you. The Doctor lures the root into the light atop the house and he manages to use gunpowder on the lighthouse to blast the root on in much the same way Captain Kirk destroys the Gorn. Now he has to get rid of the root and battle fleet. Leela points out that the Doctor could use the lamp as a magnifier to blast the root ships out of the sky and for that he needs a diamond. Skinsale tells the Doctor that Palmerdale carried diamonds at all times and they retrieved them from his money pouch. The scene where the Doctor runs through the diamonds, picks the one best suited to his purposes and then discards the rest is another quintessential Doctor moment. He's no interest in them, only in what they can do to save the people of Earth. Skinsale, however, is greedy. Despite Dix now portraying him as likeable and vaguely heroic, he cannot resist the lure of easy money. He stops to pick up the discarded diamonds and is killed by the dying Rutan. If he hadn't done that, he would not only have survived but there wouldn't have been anyone left alive to tell of his crimes. The Doctor uses the diamond to convert the lighthouse into a high-energy laser beam, and shit blows up. Leela looks directly at the explosion, which alters the pigmentation in her eyes, making her brown eyes blue. The Doctor and Leela leave, with the Doctor quoting the Ballad of Flannel Isle. I though we hunt her high and low, and hunt it everywhere. What? The Ballad of Flannel Isle by Wilfred Gibson. Who? Wilfred Gibson. Either we hunted high and low, and hunted everywhere. The three men's fate 
found no trace. In any time, in any place. But a door ajar and an untouched meal and an overtoppled chair. who was asked to wear brown contact lenses for the role of Leela but found they hurt her eyes. One of her conditions for doing another year was that she wouldn't have to wear them anymore. Making her wait until the end seems a tad mean. To be honest, they could have just done away with them between seasons and had a throwaway line about it at the beginning. This is one of the more nihilistic episodes of Doctor Who. The body count is high, with no one surviving except the Doctor and Leela. Leela gloating over the death of the Rutan is in character, but the Doctor seems to feel no remorse at all, especially given that his miscalculations are what gets some of these characters killed. He has a few lines about how pointless this has all been, but he doesn't seem to cur over much. Now, yes, big picture, he saved planet Earth, but Adelaide, as annoying as she was, and Vince didn't deserve to die. Vince's death is particularly tragic in that he dies believing his best friend killed him. Greed killed Palmerdale and Skinsale, and Ben was killed to kick the story off, but there's at least a small amount of blood on the Doctor's hands here. There's also nothing left after this story for the authorities to investigate. They will simply find a lighthouse filled with dead bodies and no clue what happened to them, the implication being that the Doctor inspired the very poem he quotes at the end. It was quite surprising to revisit this on DVD and see so many of the production people down on it. Tom Baker apparently thought it was rubbish, and the director wasn't overly enamoured by it either. Now, Paddy Russell did like the original vampire script, so some of her dissatisfaction may have come about when the show wasn't produced, but in every other respect, this is a top-notch episode. It's tight, very compact, never loses its focus, flows well, features some exceptional character work, and has a more aloof and mysterious doctor, but one who isn't infallible or all-knowing. Baker and Jameson have a groove now and work well together, despite Baker's overacting in one or two moments and the limited sets are turned into an advantage rather than a hindrance. The effects work is serviceable and given the rushed production time and problems that arose, it's a well-mounted, almost classy-looking production. There are many, many worse episodes of Doctor Who than this one, but few are as competently and confidently produced. This was a good start for producer Graham Williams. Terence Dix was a treasure. The best of the special features on the Horror of Fangrock DVD is a 36-minute tribute to Dix, looking at his time as script editor and his subsequent work as a prolific novelist. In a moment that's quite sad in reflection, producer Barry Letts, also no longer with us, asks Terence how he would like to be remembered. He answered, as a professional. 
Well, Dix was a consummate professional, and as long as the Doctor travels, a small part of Terence Dix will travel with him. Okay, let's have a look at the email section of the show. First up tonight, Babylon 5 by Nathaniel Wayne. Hey there, Andy. Hello, Nathaniel. This is where I have to admit to having never seen a full episode of Babylon 5, despite having used the show as a punchline back when the Council of Geeks YouTube channel was putting out scripted shorts. Honestly, though, thanks to how it was that I absorbed TV, it never really had a chance with me. Growing up, my home didn't have a TV signal. No rabbit ears, no cable, nothing. My mother despised TV of the time, primarily the news and the ads. I still had my favourite shows, but they were either on VHS tapes provided to me by my grandmother, or at summers spent at my grandparents. They had cable, but of course during the summer stuff was heard at weird times, and often in weird orders. I quickly learned to write off anything with an ongoing storyline, because there was no way I could be sure to see the relevant episodes. It's why I could get into Next Generation, but not Deep Space Nine. I find the approach of coming in with an endgame in mind to be a bold move that, if I'm being honest, has resulted in more misses than hits in the long run. The big natural flaw in such an approach is what if you get cancelled before you reach the end? Or perhaps worse, what if you do your planned conclusion and get renewed for more seasons after that? Even on a small scale, what if you lose an actor, as you had plans for, as appeared to have actually happened on Babylon 5? Well, there's also Supernatural had a five-year story arc, reached its five-year story arc, and continued on for ten years after Eric Kripke's original story arc. So, you know, I, I don't think you can say Supernatural has never been as good as those first five seasons, because I think it's been enjoyable throughout its run. But, uh, yeah, that certainly is an issue. One that people don't tend to think about, isn't it? They more think, well, what if you don't get five seasons? Whereas the flip side is, well, what if we get more than five seasons? One of the aggravating incarnations of this kind of problem, continues Nathaniel, is the truncated final season of Gotham. I know it's not well-loved among overly pedantic comic fans who lack any sense of fun, which is an annoyingly high percentage of them, but I adored its blend of darkness presented in an over-the-top fashion that bordered on camp. Imagine the Burton aesthetic with Batman 66's sensibilities and you're not that far off. But anyways, the fifth season was short and it became very clear that the showrunners opted to do was take what they'd planned for 20-plus episodes and condense it down to 12 episodes. The results are rushed, underserved characters, whilst at the same time new characters are introduced because it was part of the plan. They should have scrapped what they had and done a mad blowout with the pieces they had in play. Instead, they did this season out with an outside force coming into town that was just weak. That's not to say that it never works out. The upcoming fourth season of The Good Place is said to be the last, and that is the desire of the show's creator, Michael Schur, so it looks like he'll get to end that on his own terms, as always intended. Even the mad scramble can still work. One of my favourite short-lived shows of recent years was the medieval fantasy music Gallivant, which had all of 18 episodes across two seasons. The first season ended on a cliffhanger, and frankly nobody thought it would be renewed, something the show points out in the opening number of its season 2 premiere. By the end of the second season, they plant a few scenes that could be picked up, but also wisely wrap up the immediate story in a way that satisfied me no end. One of the best final lines in a show, which I won't quote because it doesn't work out of context, but what a great finish. That sounds like Moonlighting. Moonlighting did that in one of their opening season season openers. They did a song, um, another season, another shot, to show the network just what we've got. A chance for critics to scoff and sneer. We know they won't make 20 episodes this year. I think it scans slightly better than that, but something, something along those lines. 
Nathaniel wraps up with, glad I found the episode where you made your thoughts on Spider-Verse be known. This ends up being an insistence where I'm pretty glad that I don't read printed comics very much anymore, because this got to me behind introduction to Miles. The movie is a legitimate masterpiece, a monument to there's no way this idea should work right up with the Lego movie and the first Pirates of the Caribbean. It juggles no less than seven versions of Spider-Man, eight if you stick around through the credits, but never loses its focus on Miles and his journey. It's just astounding. My solitary nitpick is that I don't love the brick wall design of the Kingpin. It's not bad in a vacuum, but literally no other character has a look as exaggerated as this and it feels out of place. Um, the, the Kingpin is based almost line for line from a Bill Senkiewicz drawing of the Kingpin, which I think is from Electra Assassin. I think. And as such, I had no problem with it because I recognised it instantly as being, oh, they've done a Bill Sienkiewicz kingpin. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I, I can see how some people may have a problem with it, but I loved it because of that, because it was a Bill Sienkiewicz drawing. My last note is a bit of a spoiler. I truly adore this version of Doc Ock, possibly more than Alfred Molina's, which is a sentence I legitimately never thought I'd say. And I'm curious if you caught some of the implication about Doc Ock and Aunt May. Just in case, it's a known quantity that 616 Ock and May have had some form of relationship at a few points. At her reveal, this version of the villain says, My enemies call me Doc Ock, my friends call me Liv. And when she shows up at May's house, Peter si Peter's aunt sighs, Oh, it's Liv. Add to the fact that they cast gay icon Lily Tomlin as May, and, well, I've reached a point where hints at LGBTQ plus representation without the stones to back it up really irks me. But here it's so well handled, so subtle, and more importantly, no back patting or comments at all, I don't think. I just think it's there to be noticed if you're paying attention. I didn't think I'd go on this long. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. I, I didn't notice that. that. That's quite cute. I wonder what the implication between that, if it was intentional. You know, it's uh, it's quite a cute line, though. But uh, yeah, into the spy. I watched Into the Spider Verse again recently, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a damn good movie. Our next email tonight is from Keith Mason. Six of one, half dozen of the other. Mr. Leyland, Mr. Mason. A slightly better couple of months have come by and I decided to have a listen to a lot of your older episodes, happily learning that whilst your episodes have gotten better, they were still pretty damn good to start with. Oh, thanks, mate. Before my usual ramblings, I have to weigh in on the AI is isn't a person question. Now, I do hold to the idea that at some point an almost person would actually be a person. The cases you mentioned seem to have one thing in common, individuality. The original Human Torch, the Red Tornado and Data are all one-of-a-kind creations. The EMH and Siri are not. There is one vision from the Avengers, but every Federation ship would have an EMH. Whether or not they have evolved, the distinction between Voyager's EMH and the one seen in First Contact is hard to see. Why is the one asking if the Borg needs pseudocreme not a person, when the one who taught Seven of Nine to sing is? I don't have an answer, but it was a thought that popped up. Anyway, ramblings. Anyway, before we go into the ramblings, yeah, that that's I think that's that is a very good point. The is is the EMH that is on Voyager somehow capable of learning and discerning in ways that the other EMH programmes aren't? And if that's the case, why is that? Why are all of them not programmed for more learning? Because at some point, all of the EMHs would have to be updated as new medical knowledge occurs or is learned. How does that happen to Voyager? They're not near Starfleet. They're not near a Federation outpost or a Starbase. He can't receive the uploads that upgrade him with any new knowledge. So eventually, rather than become 
more defined, more two-dimensional a, a person, he's going to become obsolete. So it's it's curious. I mean, with data, the whole point of data was he was learning humanity. And as you say, he was he was kind of a one-off. Not really, because, you know, there was lore and there was beef lore and there was all those other extra elements. But data's thing was trying to learn to be human. But there's also the thing, the thing, the problem I had with the next generation with data was the same problem I always had with stuff like Knight Rider and Auto Man in the 80s that and the six million dollar man why is there only one of these the experiment has proven to work the noonian sung has built a data that works wilton knight has built a kit that works the six million dollar man's bionics work why are there not now a fleet of bionic men you know men who've been injured in battle in war whatever i'm sure any number of them would sign up for a project like the bionic project i'm sure that uh, armed forces would love a fleet of night industries, transams. I mean, with data, you can argue Noonien Sung took his secrets to the grave, but surely there comes a point. I mean, they, they did do an episode about this on Next Generation, and they was um, Measure of a Man, wasn't it? Where a guy wants to disassemble data to see how he works so that they can manufacture more of them. So at least it was addressed on, on the Next Generation. But yeah, but at some point, would you not have a Starfleet ship fueled with datas? But then you get the interesting dilemma of you send them on a mission from which they know they are not coming back, but could provide valuable data, pardon the pun, back to the Federation. Is that slavery? Sending disposable humans to do a job humans don't want to do, knowing that they're going to get killed? Hmm. Lots of thorny issues to, to wrestle with. Interesting issues to wrestle with. Far more interesting questions to wrestle with than the same old questions humanity has been wrestling with for what seems like the past 100 years that we are still wrestling with. Let's put all that to one side and move on and start answering other questions. That may be interesting. Anyway, amazing coverage. Not much to add here. Great comics, great related episode highlighting one of the best eras of Spider-Man. I was Joe 90. Being less than tall and wearing of the much maligned NH glasses in my pre-teen years, I was often called Joe 90 in a clearly derogatory fashion long before hearing about the show. So by the time I was able to watch it, I had no intention to do so. So this was a fascinating and informative episode that made me wonder if my son would like it. Thanks for yet another great Anderson-based show. Let me know if you let your son watch it and let me know what you think of it. I was pleasantly surprised by it. Like you, I didn't watch a lot of Joe 90 as a kid. I caught it occasionally, but it was never it was never my main vein, like Captain Scarlet or Stingray or Thunderbirds or UFO or Space 1999, any of the other shows Jerry Anderson did. But watching it as an adult, I was like, you know, if I'd give this as a chance as a 10-year-old, I'd have probably loved it because it's proper boy's own adventure of a kind they don't really make anymore. It's not sexism. To point out that Boy's Own Adventure was a fun genre. And, you know, if you want to make Girl's Own Adventure, do that as well. You know, nobody's stopping you. But Joe 90 was was balls out Boy's Own Action Adventure. Um, so give it a, give him a go. Well, then watch a couple of episodes and see what he thinks. Believe it or not, after being mentioned several times by your fine show, I'm going to have to bite the bullet and watch the first episode of The Greatest American Hero, but I have as yet not been able to find the heroine pilot, but I'm sure I will. I did happen to find a web-based series based on it, though, and wonder if there's something you were aware of. I was not aware of the web-based series. I was also not aware that apparently William Catt wrote a comic book sequel to The Greatest American Hero. I've not been able to find it anywhere, or even who the publisher is. Um, yes, the greatest American heroine pilot, for some reason, 
is not on Amazon Prime with the rest of the series. I don't know why that would be, given that it was packaged for syndication with the rest of the series. It's on the DVD sets, is my understanding. Obviously, I don't know that for a fact, because the DVD has never been released over here. I found it either on Dailymotion or YouTube, I forget which, but it's it's on there. For Colour Fleet, I was generally unaware there was a Battlestar Galactica comic, and from what you described, it sounds better than some of the episodes of the show and all of the episodes of 1980. I found this one of your most informative episodes yet, taking me from unaware to keen to find this comic for myself. Back to the comic marts, it seems. Yeah, because like I said, it's never been reprinted in its entirety, Galactica. Um, I don't think they're expensive, but they are quite hard to find. I did mention Walt Simonson's artist edition. That is expensive, but I'd love a copy. But anyway, thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed doing the Galactica episode. It got pushed up because of Shag Matthews bullying me into doing it. Somewhat less than TJ Hooked. My memories of TJ Hooker are fortunately hazy and consist of the theme tune and a young Heather Locklear. And whilst your episode was highly entertaining, I don't see myself looking to this to reacquaint myself with it. A lot of 70s shows don't hold up for reasons other than fashion and production value, and I've always suspected this was going to be one of them. A lot of stuff from when we were too young to know better is an uncomfortable watch in the cold light of modern sensibilities. Yeah, Hooker was... Hooker was... Yeah. If you are interested and you live in the UK, it's currently been rerun on, I think it's Paramount, Paramount TV or something is rerunning TJ Hooker, along with Starsky and Hutch, which is much better than TJ Hooker, Charlie's Angels, which I haven't managed to catch an episode of yet, but I plan on, certainly a Farrah Fawcett episode, and uh, Heart to Heart, of all things. When they met, it was murder. Yeah. I'm willing to bet Heart to Heart doesn't hold up. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know don't know what gives me that thought but I'm pretty willing to bet money on it two decades of the final frontier a quirk of my fandom is that I am wary of tie-ins and adaptations I don't dismiss them out of hand but I haven't warmed to them in the past I see all of the Star Trek novels and feel there's too much although I have in the past enjoyed the early Star Trek New Frontier novels by Peter David which featured original characters as well as some who had appeared in one or two episodes of The Next Generation so I'm clearly full of it I then must start checking out this supplementary material, including tracking down some of the comics. Thank you for another spotlight on these tie-ins, which are always somewhat revelatory. Again, that issue, it's my understanding, has never been reprinted anywhere. I uh, I had a look. There's been a couple of best of Star Trek graphic novels published over the years. Um, the Mirror Universe saga was a graphic novel, and there's a couple of sporadic reprints of like Howard Weinstein stuff and Peter David's The Trial of James T. Kirk stuff, but that particular issue has, to my knowledge, never been reprinted, which is a shame, because it is a really fun 20th anniversary um, story. Do, I, I don't think you need to worry too much about the Star Trek novel. I mean, I haven't read a modern one in ages. The most recent one... The most recently published Star Trek novel I read was I read a Star- the first Star Trek Discovery novel, which was fine, but was subsequently contradicted by the series, so what was the point? But um, most Star Trek novels you can just pick up and read. I mean, it depends on your vintage. Obviously, I've talked before about being more of an original series fan than anything else, but anything by Diane Duane, I'm just looking back on my bookshelf, anything by Diane Duane, J.M. Dillard or Anne Crispin, you can't go wrong with, really. Um, I've not read Spock's World yet. It's next on, on the docket, after what I'll tell you about at the end of the show. But Sarek by Anne Crispin, Lost Years by James Dillard, The Wounded Sky by Diane Duane. All excellent Star Trek novels. Time for Yesterday and Yesterday's Sun by Anne Crispin. All, all excellent novels and well worth checking out. 
Thank you for more great episodes of my favourite podcast. My best wishes to the Leyland clan from everyone here. TTFN. Uh, Keith Mason, be me so you don't have to. Quick question, are you doing Thought Bubble this year? I'm still on the fence about Thought Bubble, to be honest with you, only because I just this week discovered that George Perez is making an appearance at the London Comic Con. And I may literally get on a train, go all the way to London, just to get him to sign my Crisis on Infinite Earths and Avengers JLA um, Collector Slipcase Editions, and then come back. And if I do that, that's probably Thought Bubble money out the window. Because I also want to go to the Lakes International Comics Festival this year. Because A, it's lovely. It's a lovely festival to go to. It's spread out all over Kendall in the Lake District, so it's an actual beautiful place to just go and visit. Um, but Garth Ennis is there, and I just want to go to Garth, shake his hand, and tell him what Preacher meant to me. So I think those two may take precedence over Thought Bubble, unless Thought Bubble suddenly announces an amazing guest list, which at the moment I don't think it has done. It's announced a good guest list, I don't know that it's announced a guest that I am willing to, you know, go and see him. Let's just have a look. So Thought Bubble, Brian Azzarello's there. Well, I don't really care about that. Oh, Donny Cates is there and Terry Dodson. So they're possible. Hmm. But everyone else at Thought Bubble's there every year. Andy Diggle's there every year. Anthony Johnson's there every year. Charlie Adlard's there every year. Uh, Dave Gibbons is there every year. I've got his autograph on that Superman Adaptation CD. Gary Erkskin's there every year. Oh, it's Erd Rabbick. Ribbick. He's uh, an Emma Vispicelli. Mm. They're possibles, I suppose. It's a good, like I say, it's a good guest list. But I think, I honestly think Perez outweighs them all. Kieran Gillen's there every year. Lee Garber is there every year. Oh, Garbett. However, Olivia Copiel. Oh, that's, that's nice. Like I said, there's, there's some interesting people there. I think I'm more inclined... To head to uh, Sean Phillips is there, but he's going to be at the Lakes because he's a patron of the Lakes Film Festival, um, Comics Festival. So, like I say, I'm 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 more tempted to make the effort to go and see Perez than wander around Thought Bubble this year. But we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Okie dokie, that about wraps it up for this week's episode. If you want to be like Nathaniel and Keith, you can drop me a line at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and uh, tell me what you like or don't like <laughs> about the show. I quite like when people tell me what they don't like. I know that's weird, but, you know, okay. Hey, oh, sorry, Perez's MCM Comic Con. So it's not London Comic Con, whatever it's called. I don't know the name of it anymore. Isn't the two big London ones? Anyway, uh, everything's going to be okay. And next time, uh, Keith will be made up to learn that we are going back to tie-in novels. Because uh, we're going to look, an in-depth look, at William Shatner's Star Trek novel, The Ashes of Eden. Hmm, that'll be fun. All right, see you next week. Goodbye.